Okay, I love a good plot twist, whether it's in a movie or a book. There's something really fun about getting caught up in the story. And just when you think, you kind of can anticipate where the story is going, there's this big plot twist. Maybe the helpful guide is revealed to be the villain. Or the villain turns out to be the hero's father, right? Luke. Maybe one of the best plot twists of all time. That sounded really good, by the way. Didn't that? Not that I've been practicing. <laughs> Rita. The obviously malicious and guilty character that you meet at the start of the story turns out to actually be innocent and maybe even heroic. Or at some point in the movie or the story, there's a discovery of some kind. Maybe it's a recovered memory, there's a note, or an item of some kind. And what it does is once it's in play, it forces you to kind of rewind the entire narrative and to realize I've been tracking through the wrong trajectory of this story. I have to reinterpret everything that has come before this moment. My personal favorite plot twist is a device called the eucatastrophe. How many people have heard of a eucatastrophe before? Not catastrophe, eucatastrophe. Nobody? Ooh, learning Sunday, here we go. This is a, a plot twist turn device that was invented by J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings. And it's a particularly intense plot twist because it happens when everything seems to be going wrong and then quite unexpectedly and very dramatically, things turn for the better. And so there's a very fast flip from impending doom to salvation. So you get the word catastrophe, right? That's when everything is going wrong. But in Greek, the prefix eu, u, means good. So the word means a good catastrophe. And so with a eu catastrophe, you end up with a point in the story where you would logically conclude that this is a catastrophic end, but then something happens very unexpectedly, and doom turns out to be the conduit through which we move, and then we're saved. And so in The Lord of the Rings, probably there's a few of these in Lord of the Rings, but the high point comes at the end of the story. Frodo, through this long and laborious epic journey, has brought this ring to Mount Doom, and he needs to throw it into the, the fires of Mount Doom. But the catastrophe is when he holds the ring over the fires, he can't let go. He can't do it. He can't fulfill his mission. Your heart sinks. And then when Gollum surprises him and grabs the ring. The catastrophe lands to another level in your heart because what your thought, where you're being led to is that evil is one. That after all this fight, all the striving, all the efforts, evil is going to win. But then Gollum, of course, overwhelmed with his glee, falls into the fire with the ring. And then the world is saved. And in the world of literature, because of this event that Tolkien writes about, he's credited with creating the eucatastrophe. And it's this plot device that for Tolkien was grounded in the death of Jesus on Friday and then the resurrection on Sunday. Because Tolkien studied the story and it was in his bones and he understood it and he realized when Jesus' dead, cold, bruised, broken, bleeding, tortured body was laid to rest on Friday, for everybody who loved Jesus and was invested in the story that he was moving towards, the end that they thought they were all moving towards, 
It was a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions. And what they didn't know, but we know now, is that there was a major plot twist coming. So let's read that together from the Gospel of Luke, and I invite Carrie up for the first part of our reading. Luke 23, 1 to 12. They're 24. All right, well, then we'll just turn the page. (laughs) It makes more sense. (laughs) Luke 24, 1 to 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the disciples. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself, what had happened. I'm going to invite Rita up to continue the account. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death 
and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Thanks, Rita. And now Maria to close the account. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see myself, I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. 
everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Love a good plot twist. And the resurrection is the plot twist to end all plot twists. As Tolkien wrote, the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation, the story of God coming to dwell among us. And this is a story that begins and ends with joy. Jesus is risen. He is alive. He has been resurrected, not simply resuscitated. And that resurrection has consequences first and foremost, to the big story that you imagine your life to be a part of. I mean, if you think about it, if the resurrection is true, and I believe that it is, then you, it basically requires that you become deeply suspicious of any worldview, any ideas that are steeped in nihilism or that believes the world has no purpose or a worldview that encourages you into apathy or despondency or cynicism or despair. Jesus' resurrection forces you into a new narrative where you are confronted with challenging and invigorating truths like there is a love stronger than death. There is a power that can endure more than suffering. And there is a hope that pierces the deepest darkness. N.T. Wright writes, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and now you are being invited to belong to it. See, Easter is the start of something genuinely new. A new and living hope that can be taken hold of by anybody who decides to place their faith and trust in the King who has subjugated the forces of sin and death. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth into heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. And the resurrection of Jesus is a plot twist with implications that touch every single dimension of your life. To understand the resurrection means to radically reevaluate your past and your present and your future. Chuck Swindoll writes that the benefits of the resurrection are innumerable, but to list a few, your illnesses don't seem nearly so final, your fears fade and lose their grip, our grief over those who have gone on is diminished, our desires to press on in spite of obstacles is rejuvenated, our identity as Christians is strengthened as we stand in the lengthening shadow of saints down through the centuries, who when we have said, Christ is risen on the present Easter morning. They have always responded back an antiphonal voice. He is risen indeed. 
For those in Christ, Watchman Nee says, our old history ends with the cross and our new history begins with the resurrection. Or a particularly powerful quote that I've been ruminating on from Frederick Buechner this year. The resurrection of Jesus means that the very worst thing is never the final thing. The resurrection of Jesus means the very worst thing is never the final thing. The older I get, and with every Easter that I move through, I am humbled with the realization of just how much my imagination has to grow to continually allow the resurrection to give it new shape and new life and expand it. If this plot twist is true, and I believe that it is, how should I live? How should we live in light of the resurrection? And that, for a Christian, becomes the animating question for the rest of your life. It's what Rowan Williamson describes as the never-failing source of affirmation, of challenge, of enrichment and enlargement. To be a bored, disengaged, despondent Christian is to be utterly disconnected from an understanding of the resurrection and its implications. To a woman, Jesus once boldly declared, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked her, do you believe this? That's the question for each of us this morning. Do you believe this? Christian, if you have turned your life over to Jesus and you've put your trust in him for your salvation, then let the resurrection propel you deeper into mission, further into the adventure of following Jesus and his plans for your new life in him. Because there's a new game afoot, there are new dragons to be slain, there are new mysteries to be discovered, there are new potentials to be realized, there are new possibilities to be explored. And anyone who's not a believer listening to me this morning, I want you to know that the hope and the power and the wisdom, the freedom, the purpose, the connection, the sense of wholeness, grace, forgiveness, acceptance, the deliverance that you are longing for, that you are seeking, can only be found in this Jesus. Because he alone, the Bible declares, is the author of life. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, and the resurrection proves it. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. I love a good plot twist, and the resurrection is the best and grandest one of all. The resurrection is a eucatastrophe that extends an invitation to every single person in this room to leave behind your old stories, to leave behind your old scripts, your fruitless strategies, your false idols, your petty grievances, your hopeless posture, your sinful indifference, your mutinous rebellion against the very author of life. And instead, it's a summons to come under his leadership and his grace and power-infused life so that in him, our stories might be rewritten into something truly beautiful and good. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. The eucatastrophe is real. And the promise that it opens up for each of us is matchless. Let's pray.
Jesus, as we stand to sing this final song, we give you all the praise and glory for drawing near to us when you could have abandoned us to despair, for dying for us even while we beat and spit on you and mocked you, and for rising in power and offering us forgiveness and absolution and eternal life that begins now and then extends out forever. Thank you for your grace. May we not hear this message of hope in vain. In your mighty and powerful name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Please stand as we sing our closing song.